We are indeed beginning a study in the book of, well, not only Matthew, but specifically chapters 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount this morning. And one of the things that uh, I'm I'm doing is encouraging our small group members to memorize uh, these Beatitudes over the next several weeks as we work our way through uh, this section of Scripture. You read it responsibly this morning. Many of you have probably memorized it in Sunday school before, but a great time to revisit this section of Scripture, make it a part of your heart and a part of your life as we work our way through this section of Scripture over the next many weeks. Now, not many of us remember many sermons. In fact, at my age, I don't even remember what I preached last week or last month many times. We don't remember very many sermons. I remember a few. I told you about one this last fall when we were on vacation. We were headed out west And I still remember the refrain or the title of that sermon, Sound or Echo. We were on vacation at the time. I remember one message by Stuart Briscoe, great Bible teacher. He came to Wheaton when I was a student there. He gave a wonderful message from the book of Acts. I still remember his main points. Loving Lord, searching soul, willing witness. Still remember those thoughts from that sermon. I remember one message which Dr. Richard Halverson taught in Washington, D.C. in 1976. It was the bicentennial of our country. And he had this incredible message, can you remember or have you forgotten? And I still remember him preaching that. Do you remember any sermons? Perhaps one or two? And that's what makes this so amazing, this passage of Scripture which we come to this morning. Because what we have here today in front of us is a sermon which was preached over 2,000 years ago. The most famous sermon ever preached. A sermon preached by our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus, when he preached this sermon, wasn't standing on a platform beside a pulpit like I am this morning. He actually went up to a mountain, and he sat down, and he taught in typical rabbinic style, the style that they used back in that day and age. Look at verse 1 again. The Bible tells us that he went up to a mountain, or literally, some of your translations will have, he went up to the mountain, almost like Moses going up to Mount Sinai, the top of that mountain. The exact location of this mountain, we do not know. You've got a picture up here on the screen for you this morning of the hillside just northwest of the Sea of Galilee. It was somewhere in this area that Jesus taught this this great sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. Today, there's a, a church built in the 20th century up on this mountain. 
and just down the hillside, there's a, the remains of a, a Byzantine chapel. And uh, we've got that slide coming up for you right now. Somewhere in that area, they built these buildings thinking that this is where Jesus actually preached uh, this, this message or taught this, this content, which we call the Sermon on the Mount. Now look at chapter 4, verses 23 through 25. And notice that the crowds were flocking to Jesus on this occasion. He was a very popular preacher or teacher. And so the crowds were flocking to him. He'd healed many of diseases and pains and he'd cast out demons and epileptics had been healed and paralytics And verse 25 said that great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond uh, the Jordan. And seeing the crowds, he goes up on this mountain and he sits down. And what I want you to notice here is that even though the crowds are following him, this sermon is not for the crowds. Notice what verse one tells us. He sat down... And his disciples came to him. This sermon that Jesus gives on this occasion is not for the crowds, not for everybody that's just flocking and mauling him. It's for those who are serious about following him, his disciples. That's who this sermon is for. Now, that's important to understand because that helps us us understand the meaning of the sermon And I think that Jesus wants you to get the the meaning of this sermon this morning, so much so that he changed my voice this week. Last week, I was a tenor. This week, I'm a baritone. So you have to pay attention this morning. Notice who Jesus is speaking to. He's speaking to his followers. They come up to him. And he gives them this sermon. Now, there's a lot of different interpretations on why we have the Sermon on the Mount and what the Sermon on the Mount was given to us for. And if you have the English Study Bible, that version of the Bible, and the Study Bible at that, on page 1827, they give you all these different interpretations of this sermon. But if you understand the context and you understand that it's for his disciples, that helps us understand the purpose of the sermon and the meaning of this message that Jesus has for us. You see, the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' description and teaching of what a disciple or a follower of his is to look like and to live like. That's why we have this sermon This sermon is not the program one person must follow or a person must follow in order to become a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not some kind of body of teaching that we're given that we're supposed to live up to in order to find a place in heaven. That's not the reason we have the Sermon on the Mount. This sermon is given to us 
as the way of life that is to be pursued by people that are already disciples. That means that this sermon is for every believer, every person who has given their life to the Lord Jesus Christ who's serious about following him. This is what your life should look like. This is what my life should look like as we seek to live for our Lord Jesus Christ. We don't become disciples by living out the Sermon on the Mount. We live out the Sermon on the Mount because we're disciples, because we're followers of the Lord Jesus. And our heart is to follow him and and to be what he calls us to be. A relationship with Jesus is presumed and experience of God's saving grace is assumed as we come to study this passage of Scripture. You see, it's only by God's saving, enabling, motivating, and empowering grace that we can become what Jesus wants us to become and we can be what Jesus wants us to be. I've got some bad news for you. And then I've got some good news for you this morning. You know what the bad news is? You can't live up to the Sermon on the Mount. You can't live it out. It's impossible. That's the bad news. But you know what the good news is? You can live out the Sermon on the Mount. You can model the Sermon on the Mount. You can do it if you understand that it's only by God's saving, enabling, sanctifying work of grace in your heart that you can possibly begin to live even a portion of this this piece of scripture that Jesus gives us here. The Sermon on the Mount is a picture of the inner character of a follower of Jesus. In any age, it's a picture of what you and I should look like this morning. And so the Bible tells us here in verses one and two, now when he saw the crowds, he went up to this mountain and he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. Now, in the next three verses, these three verses we're going to look at this morning, what we have now is three cornerstones of Christian character that should mark our lives if we're authentic followers of the Lord Jesus. And notice the first cornerstone of character. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, what does it mean to be poor in spirit? I mean, this is an interesting image, but what does it mean? Well, it's interesting if you look at John MacArthur's commentary on this passage of scripture, he has a very uh, wonderful insight. He tells us that there are actually two different words used in the Greek language to describe poverty. One of those words describes normal poverty, the kind of poverty that you might see among poor people here in the United States. One of the things that I've learned in my time here is that several of you, I think, went down to Louisiana and helped after Katrina hit uh, that section of our country. And if you went there, then you saw a lot of poverty-stricken people people that were just barely scraping by. 
That's this first Greek word. It means that you barely have enough money to just get by. You're just scraping by. You're just barely making ends meet. But you're making ends meet. You're poor. You're barely making it. Now, the second Greek word is a word which describes destitute poverty. Not just poor, but begging poor. It's the kind of poverty that you would observe if you went to India or if you went to Africa or if you went to some third world country. I spent some of my younger years, my youthful years, growing up in Latin America. And one of the things that I would see regularly was were these poor children that had barely any clothing just running along the streets, the streets of the country. And we'd go to these little dirt shacks, and they didn't have wooden floors. And maybe they just had one meal or a couple of meals a day. They were destitute poor. They were begging poor. That's the word used in this, this, this verse of Scripture. To be destitute poor, to be totally dependent on someone or something else in order to get by. It means to be absolutely helpless or to be absolutely powerless. That's this Greek word. And Jesus says, blessed are those who are totally dependent, who are absolutely helpless, who are powerless and know they're powerless. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, who are poor in heart, who have come to the end of themselves and know that they're at the end of themselves, that if they're going to take the next step or they're going to get by in life, they've got to have God because they're not going to make it on their own. It means to realize that you're incapable of earning salvation, of living out the lifestyle of salvation you come to a place where you realize your absolute need for God. It's the song we sang this morning. Did you listen to the words or were you just on autopilot today? You're the air that I breathe. Now, let me ask you, do you need air? Absolutely. Without air, you don't, Breathe, you don't live. In the same way, we need to be desperate for God. It means to be absolutely destitute, helpless, powerless, knowing that you need the Lord in your life. That's this word. Notice he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, not blessed are the proud in spirit. Isn't it interesting? The longer we know Christ, it's tempting to actually become a little bit proud. I mean, after all, I make the scene at church. I've taught pioneer clubs for X number of years, or I sing in the choir, whatever it is for you. And we make this long list of stuff. And, and, and somehow we get to this place where we, we kind of think that we, 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 we kind of, you know, is God lucky to have me? 
But the best illustration I know that to illustrate what Jesus is talking about is in Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. Turn there just very quickly. Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. There are a lot of people in Jesus' day who were proud in spirit. You know what they were called? They weren't called pioneer clubbers. They weren't called lifetime churchgoers, but they were called Pharisees and Sadducees. And here in Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14, Jesus told a parable. I'll just read it for you. You remember it. He told a parable to some who trusted in themselves. You see, these people were trusting in themselves. They didn't need God. They weren't desperate for him. He wasn't the air that they breathed. They thought there was something that they could do to earn their way into heaven or earn favor with him. They trusted in themselves that they were righteous and they treated others with contempt. And verse 10 says that two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. Aren't you blessed to have me, Lord? I'm not like the extortioners and the unjust and the adulterers or even like this tax collector standing over there. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing far off wouldn't even lift up his eyes toward heaven. But he beat his breast saying, God, now this is this poverty of spirit we're talking about. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus said, I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And so this first cornerstone of character that we're talking about this morning is authentic humility, genuine poverty of spirit. We never grow beyond our need for this in the Christian life. You know what? You needed God's grace to be saved. And you know what? You need God's grace to be sanctified. And I need God's grace to be sanctified. We need his grace. He's the air we breathe if we're gonna be the people that he wants us to be. Now, notice the second characteristic that he gives us here in this passage of Scripture. And if you got the notes, take the time to read that wonderful quote by E.M. Bounds on how humility is born in our lives. Notice this second characteristic, this genuine brokenness that Jesus goes on to describe. He said, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Poverty in spirit is the doorway to salvation and the doorway into God's sanctifying grace. And this, this spirit of mourning now goes beyond just this, this belief that we have of ourselves. To be poor in spirit is a mindset. I get up in the morning and I have this fundamental belief about myself. I need the Lord Jesus Christ. 
if I'm going to get through this day. I needed Jesus to save me. I need Jesus to sanctify me. I need Jesus to get me through this day. That's an intellectual foundational mindset that we should have, being poor in spirit. But this, this mourning that he talks about now goes beyond just an intellectual dimension to the emotional. This gets into our emotions. If we truly believe that we're this way, then we'll come to a place where we actually begin to mourn over our sin, over our, our bankruptcy, over our corrupt nature, our evil hearts, all of our mess-ups. And so he says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Now, what does it mean to mourn? Well, there are nine different words in the Greek language which describe mourning or grieving. This is one of those nine words. And it's the same word used in Mark chapter 16, verse 10. So turn to Mark, the end of the Gospel of Mark, chapter 16, verse 10. Now, the scene here is that Jesus has just been crucified. And Mary Magdalene has discovered that he's risen from the dead. But all of the other disciples don't know it yet. And so what does the Bible tell us here in verse 10? She went and told those who'd been with him as they mourned and as they wept. This is, the same, this is a word that would be used for those who are grieving at a funeral. These people in this verse of Scripture are mourning. They're, they're in despair because they, they believe that Jesus has died and he's never coming back again. They think they've lost him. That's this Greek word. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. But he's not talking about mourning over someone who's died. He's talking about mourning over our human condition which I just described. It's, an, it's a lamenting word. It means that, that you get to a place where you put on sackcloth and ashes over your own sinful attitudes and actions. It's a genuine brokenness of heart which leads to repentance, the kind of, of, of brokenness of heart described in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. The Bible gives us lots of different examples of this kind of, of brokenness of heart. Remember the example of Jesus? We've got him up here on the screen for you. We've got the example of Jeremiah and Nehemiah, the example of David and Peter in the Bible. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 23, verse 37, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I've longed to gather you as my children, but you would not. Jesus is grieving. He's mourning over the sin of Jerusalem in that passage of Scripture. Jeremiah, is there no balm in Gilead? Jeremiah chapter 8, verse 21, or Nehemiah, we studied in our, in our prayer meeting this last Wednesday night. Nehemiah said, as soon as I heard these words that Jerusalem was broken and people were in distress and the walls were broken down. I wept and mourned for days for the sin of, of the people of Jerusalem. You remember David, have mercy on me, O God, 
My sin is always before me. And Peter, he went outside and the Bible says he wept bitterly in Matthew chapter 26, verse 75. You remember Paul in Romans chapter 7, verse 24, what he said? He said, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Have you ever gotten so aggravated, so frustrated with yourself? Just so mad at yourself. And incidentally, this doesn't say, blessed are those who are miserable. That's not what he's talking about here. He's saying, blessed are those who mourn, who are brokenhearted over the way they act, over what they say. My wife married me. And she thought I was a patient person. And then to her shock and surprise, she discovered that I wasn't. She married me because she thought that uh, I was always kind and gentle, only to discover that, that I wasn't that person that she thought I was. And how many times have I become frustrated with myself the way I've treated my own family members had to write my own children notes asking their forgiveness for the way that I treated them. Open your your hymn books right now to just 178. And no, I'm not going to sing again this morning, okay? You're blessed that I've got a bad voice today. Number 178. You know, this is, the, this is the most famous hymn in Germany. When you think of Germany, you think of a mighty fortress is our God, that great hymn. I mean, that's the, the great hymn of Germany, right? But according to what I've read, this hymn, O Sacred Head Now Wounded, is the most famous hymn, the most beloved hymn. That's the wrong word, famous the most loved him in Germany. Look at the words. Oh, I, I, I just, I can't read them. I, I want to sing it. Oh, sacred. I guess I can't sing it today, but you'll, you'll have to sing it for me. But just look at the words. Oh, sacred head now wounded with grief and shame weighed down. Now scornfully surrounded with thorns thy only crown. How pale thou art with anguish. And it goes on to talk about our Savior's death for our sin. That's what he's describing here, is that that brokenheartedness over just the, the lousy way we act sometimes. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Mourning over our sin. Martin Luther said when he posted his 95 theses on the door of Wittenberg, as a part of that, that our entire life is an act of continuous repentance and contrition. And people that are repentant in an ongoing way, they will be comforted. 
you will experience the comfort of God, the forgiveness of God, the reassurance of God in your heart of life. This is authentic Christianity. Authentic Christianity is just a bunch of broken, sinful people who've been forgiven and they're deeply grateful. And as a result of that, their love for Jesus pours out of their lives. And then we have this third and final characteristic or mark this morning. Sincere meekness. Look at verse five. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. That's the the promise that we have here in this, this passage of Scripture. There's a modern paraphrase of the Beatitudes that goes like this. Blessed are those who believe in themselves, for they'll be successful. Blessed are those who are in touch with their feelings, for they'll feel good. Blessed are the self-assertive, for they'll get ahead in life. Blessed are the open-minded, for they'll be respected. Blessed are the tolerant, for they'll be accepted. Blessed are those who are in good shape, for they'll be envied. Blessed are the sensitive and fun-loving, for they'll they'll find intimacy. Blessed are the populars, for theirs is the world. But Jesus' value system is just the opposite of what we read here and what you see in life around you. This word meekness means mildness of disposition, gentleness of spirit, meekness toward God that's a disposition of spirit in which we accept his dealings with us is good instead of fighting people and fighting life without disputing and resisting. It means meekness toward evil people. It's the opposite of self-assertiveness, which, we, which I just read in this, this modern rendition. You know, God has to bring us to this place in our lives. If you have the notes, I had a little story earlier that I skipped over. Remember at one point in my life, I was in high school and uh, I was having one of, I was not mourning, I was literally miserable because I was out for wrestling, okay? I went out for wrestling one winter to stay in shape for between football and baseball. And one of the things that I learned is that just because you're strong doesn't mean that you're going to be a good wrestler. And so I was getting beat week after week after week and was getting discouraged. And we went to this one weekend meet and I I stood out on the mat on this particular Saturday morning and here was this little wet noodle of a guy standing in front of me, this nerdy guy. And I was going to, I was getting to wrestle him that day. And I thought, oh good, I'm finally going to win a match. I could hardly wait to get out on the mat with a guy, and he pinned me in less than 45 seconds. (laughs) You talk about humbling. But God has a way of chopping our knees out from underneath us and bringing us back to that place where we need to be. He reminds us of our failures. So we will be humble. So we will mourn over who we are so that we will become meek in our disposition toward other people in the way that we treat them. 
instead of getting mad at them because they're a mess, take a look at yourself because you're a mess too. And that leads to the attitude of meekness in the way that we treat others. This is the horizontal dimension now in our relationships with each other. Now, one thing you need to understand as we close this out this morning is that meekness is not weakness. Philip Yancey had a great little illustration in his book, The Jesus I Never Knew. And he called Jesus, Jesus the Lionhearted. He said, as I studied the life of Christ, one impression about Jesus that struck me more forcefully than any other is that we've tamed him. We've made him into Mr. Rogers with a beard on. Well, Jesus wasn't Mr. Rogers with a beard on. And meekness isn't Mr. Rogers. It's not soggy milk toast. This is a very strong word. This is a Greek word which actually described wild coats, colts, pardon me, that had been tamed or lions whose strength had been harnessed as they were tamed. If you're a meek person, then you're a strong person because meekness has all to do with self-control. It's a, it's a fruit of the spirit as we relate to each other in the way that we treat each other. And it's an aspect of, 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 of character which we can't humanly manufacture. I cannot be meek in my own strength and power. One other little episode from my own life, and maybe you can identify with this. I share it because it's just a human analogy. When we were living in Kansas City many years ago, and my wife Elizabeth would remember this, we were driving home late one night, and this guy cut in front of us. And I'm driving along, I'm trying, I'm in a hurry to get home, and this guy just just cuts in front of me. And I became livid. You get the picture? Did I do that good enough? I was mad. And so I took the kids home, and I got back in the car, and I went out looking for this person. (laughs) Now, how stupid is that? in Kansas City, Missouri, as if I'm going to find him. And if I found him, what was I going to do? Just stupidity. But you know what it's like when you you get mad at whoever, the bank teller, and you're going to let him have it. The opposite of meekness. That's who we are as human beings. but it's the meek that will inherit the earth. The meek that will inherit the earth. And Psalm 37, 11 tells us the same thing in the Old Testament. Now, as we wrap this up, notice the word blessed. And I wanna just close with this. Look at that word blessed. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. And we're gonna see it again next week. 
Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. It's repeated over and over again here in the Beatitudes. Blessed, blessed, blessed. What does that word blessed mean? This is an interesting word. It means happy, prosperous, blessed, truly fortunate. Those that are truly blessed with the favor and the grace and well-being of God in their lives are people who are marked by these qualities, contrary to what the world may teach you. You'd go to Disneyland this morning, and it's the happiest place on earth. Did you know that? That's the, that's the slogan for Disneyland and Disney World. They're the happiest places on earth. And mil, not just millions, but billions of people have now visited those amusement parks. You know, back in Jesus' day, this Greek word, and I'm not going to pronounce it correctly, this Greek word, makrios, was a description of the island of Cyprus in Jesus' day. Because Cyprus was one of the favorite places for people to go for holiday. Makrios means happy. Cyprus was the happy place. It's the Greek island which people go to today in order to be happy. You go to Hawaii, you go to Cyprus, you go to Greece because you want to be happy. You go to Disneyland because you want to be happy. And you go to Disneyland and you leave Disneyland and guess what? You're still not happy. Because happiness and blessing and meaning in life is not found in Disneyland or external things. It's only found in a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And those that have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ are marked by poverty in spirit, mourning for their mess-ups. And they're marked by their meekness, the way that they treat others. That's an evidence of genuine faith. Okay, we're going to sing our closing hymn now. Mike, if you'd come. And I think this is a great way to close this morning. Just listen to the words. And as Mike is coming to lead us in this closing hymn, um, Joanne, would you just come up here for a second? All the way up here. You've never been, maybe you were up here, up at the front of this church when you were baptized years ago. I, I think you were baptized here. Hope you were baptized here. Hope you're baptized. <laughs> I know you're baptized. Come on up here. We're gonna, I just want to pray for this gal. This is her last Sunday with us. And you know, you were just a treat. I just thoroughly enjoyed interviewing you. You are young at heart. And may God use your youngness as you go to North Carolina to be near your kids. I know you're going to go there to serve him. And we're just so grateful that uh, you've been a part of this church family for all these years. And you, you, you were born just up the road here, weren't you? Just, just about a half a mile, three quarters of a mile from here. Promise me one thing. You'll come back and visit. Will you? Okay. Lord, be with Joanne this morning, and I just pray that uh, the sweet aroma of Christ, because I see a lot of what I've been preaching this morning in her life, 
I pray that she would just carry you with her, that you would be with her, that you'll take her and use her, Lord, as she, she moves away from us. But uh, this is just a new chapter, Lord, a new chapter. And I pray that you'd use her in a significant way. Bless her, Lord, in Jesus' name I ask, amen. Okay, let's stand together and sing this closing hymn now. And, uh, yeah, you can go. <laughs>